welcome to the London Horror Movie Club. I'm horror writer Lauren Jane Barnett. And I'm Chris Sapkowski, Lauren's older brother, and I've been watching horror movies since I was eight. Join us as we talk about the wild, weird, and wonderful horror films set in England's eerie capital. Welcome back, horror fans. Chris and I are thrilled today that we have with us a major horror fan, horror writer, producer, director of award-winning films like The Devil's Music, and his latest film that's coming out, which sounds like, if you know Chris and I, the perfect film, Power Tool Cheerleaders and the Boy Band of the Screeching Dead. He was also recently a hit at Fright Fest, so we're very lucky to have him. Welcome, Pat. Thank you very much for having me here. It's brilliant to be here, so cheers. Thank you. I have to start by asking, I understand that Power Tool Cheerleaders is an incredibly contemporary story because it started with a tweet, right? Yeah, it did. Um, It was on my... I always keep about six scripts bubbling at any given time, usually so that if someone comes up and goes, oh, I need a project for this, I go, I happen to have the very thing. If you only have, like, one script on your go-to pile then the perfect opportunity, the perfect person to talk to comes up and you have nothing to give them. You know, if someone comes out and goes, well, you know, really, I want something, a romantic comedy with with spooky elements, whatever. And you, go, you want to go, I have the perfect thing. But also, if you meet someone who goes, I just want hardcore horror, you know, properly terrifying, I have the perfect thing. So I always have about six scripts going. Uh, and every now and again, you have to fill it the pile. You have to go through and go, yeah, that's not really where it needs to be and and power tool cheerleaders versus the boy band of the screeching dead wasn't a great deal more than a title it, i'd maybe got uh, i'd got a few kind of notes maybe a one pager and that was about it um and i just waited saying uh unfortunately i think power tool cheerleaders versus the boy band of the screeching dead is is gonna get a go on my rejects pile i'm gonna start working on it it's a shame because it was more subtle than it sounds was the was the tweet basically um and charlie Bond, our producer and lead in in the movie, just replied going, no, we're going to make that. <laughs> and, and I just sort of messaged the kind of guy, really? And she's just like, that title is, that. that's it. We, we're going to do that one. And by the end of the day, she just sort of grabbed it and run with it. And so by the end of the day, she just started messaging other blue ticks. Back when blue ticks meant something on Twitter, not, not right. I've got eight bucks. Back when it was people who had done stuff. Uh, and she'd sort of message, message all these people, just going, if we make this movie, are you in? And, and they're going, yeah. Um, and so by the end of that, actually, um, James Homer Morton, who's a, a, another of the leads in the movie, uh, and also did loads of editing and, and musical direction and stuff like that. And Danny Thompson, they, they were on board by the end of that day. Uh, so it, it, was, it wow. was me going, yeah, this movie's dead. And Charlie just went, no, it's not. <laughs> And suddenly it went from being the one I was scrapping to being what we shot next. So cool. (laughs) That's that's amazing to have that kind of backing where people are like, yes, no, I want to do this with you. (laughs) Do a lot of your movies then start out as these great titles or do you get the idea first? I'm uh yeah, I I have ended up kind of titles titles have ended up kind of um dominating a lot and taglines as well have ended up pushing my career in different directions. I mean, um, I it, it, it was a, a bad film and a bad experience, unfortunately, but not, not powerful. Uh, but many years ago, I did a movie called Strippers vs. Werewolves, and that came about because that was my joke title. It was literally... I used to do stand-up many, many years ago, and it was that was my go-to 
ridiculous movie title, as in that, you know, if you're saying, if you're talking about someone sitting on the sofa, that I would always say they'd be watching Strippers versus Wells or whatever it was. And my wife and I kind of went, all right, well, Strippers versus Wells is clearly our last resort card that if we run out of money, if we'll just make that movie. And so it became a kind of running joke between us. And I'd said it publicly a few times. Um, and then I got I got contacted by a producer in the, oh God, where are we now? Uh, nearly 12 years ago, something like that. And they sort of said, what what things have you got on your pile at the moment? And I listed six as, you know, whatever six I was working on development. And I just got an email back going, I heard you were working on something called Strippers versus Werewolves. And I was like, oh, no, I'm going to write it. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so that was how that one kind of came about. And that ended up having Robert England in it and, and stuff, which was nice. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, the movie had, the, it, it was a notoriously, yeah. Um, but it, it got made. Um so yeah, so so wacky titles have kind of led things before. That's why Power Tool came about. It's why Strippers vs Wales came about. Um, I think Hellbride, which was one of my early movies, I, I had a, a vague thing in my head of a kiss off line of "You may kill the bride," uh, and that kind of let, and then it was like, oh yeah, now I've got to write a movie just to get to that end line. Um, <laughs> So that, that. Yeah. So sometimes it's just a glib one-liner or whatever, and then the movie comes from there. Yeah, but I mean, it obviously worked out. That did well at the Festival of Fantastic Films, didn't it? So which one? Uh, the Hellbride, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah. Hellbride got commended. Hellbride. Um, I, I. That's still twenty years into into doing this. Hellbride is still the most joyous onset experience I ever had. It was one of those ones where, looking back at it as a movie, any of your early movies, you kind of look back and you kind of go. Oh, that shot's ropey, or you know, the sound. We had some stuff. There's some scenes on a beach where you just look back at the sound and you go, "Yeah, I, there was no way of salvaging that." And these things then go out into the world and they're just part of the movie. And you just, you know, that you love them warts and all for what they are. But so there's things from a technical point of view, and even from a kind of narrative structure point of view that I do differently on Hellbred. But looking back, as I say, 15 years or whatever it is down the line. I just think what an incredible blast every single person had on that movie. We were, you know, we all, we're all still in touch nowadays, obviously. Loads of people still go back and work on other stuff. But that was the one where I just sort of thought, that's what I always want every set to feel like. I want every set to feel like everyone's happy and valued and cared about and that that's why they're all here. And that we're making something that's hopefully going to be brilliant, but everybody feeling... That the, their work is valued is is more important than that somehow. So Hellbride was the one that set that that method of working with me really. And I've never, uh, you know, I, it's always the one I look back. I go, well, I can't really have many regrets about Hellbride because everything about it was such a blast. And if it hadn't been, I don't know if I'd have been able to stick it out for the long haul. It was it was the third of my movies to get released, but it was actually the second one we shot because we shot two back to back that summer. Um, and so that early formative experience of having my second feature just be the most blessed shoot all the way through it. Every single thing that that went that could have gone right did right up until one day when everything went wrong, which was the penultimate day of the shoot. Everything went wrong, but it almost felt like fate had built up this team where we were all like, "You're you're all you know." You've all got the confidence and the teamwork, and whatever, to deal with the day from hell you're about to have. <laughs> so we just had one awful day. And again, in retrospect, you look back on it and you go, actually, having everything just be 
I don't, I don't want to ramble on about it forever. I've got, but I have got two examples. That one example being, we needed a, a sequence shot in a disco, and it basically we had a large blacked out room, and it was that sort of thing. And because we've been running around madly, and I did a lot of production work on that as well. I didn't, I wasn't just writing and directing. I didn't know how to produce the stuff as well. Um, and I realised that we got there, and we got no lights, just because it had been completely overlooked to hire a load of disco lighting. And it was one of these things where I was like. Right, okay, well, I know where all the lighting shops are. I can send a runner out, you know, it's going to cost more to be able to get it without planning it, but we'll, we'll do it. And literally, my lead actor, uh, who was a, a brilliant guy called James Fisher, who, who was just phenomenal in that movie, and he turned up on set, you know, and, and I sort of said, I'm really, really sorry, your call time's going to be delayed. We haven't, we need disco lighting, and we haven't got any. And he just looks at me and goes, my boot's full of disco lighting. And literally opened his boot and full professional setup of disco lighting in his boot. Because he had it as a side hustle and I had no idea. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, my God. Everything kind of goes wrong and then goes right at the same time. That That's nice. That that was great. <laughs> but, yeah, that summed up Hellbright, really, though. <laughs> You were at, you were mentioning writing, directing, and producing in that one. Do you have a favorite of the three that you like doing? Uh, I I worry that I I always end up hankering for whatever I'm not doing. That like if I'm sitting behind a keyboard writing, I'm going, oh Christ, I wish I was on set directing. And then when I'm directing, and there's all these other things, I go, I long for the control of screenwriting, where it's all just down to me and all that sort of thing. Um, I think. <laughs> Producing is not really my jam. I, it's a thing that I end up doing because I, you know, in some circumstances, if people that I've worked with previously aren't available to do it, I know I'm a safe pair of hands as a producer, but I'm also the sort of the guy who forgot to hire a load of disco lighting. So maybe I, <laughs> but you know, I've never forgotten to write the screenplay. I have forgotten to hire disco lighting. So maybe I'm a better writer than a producer, but uh, <laughs> I kind of dig all of it. I just love movies. Yeah. What, what was the first movie that... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, yeah. What was the first movie that got you into the love of movies or even the love of horror movies, that genre? I mean, the 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 movies that made me love film were when I was three, I had the double whammy. My mum took me to both Star Wars, the original Star Wars when it came out, I saw it on opening night at three. Uh, and and it was a, we'd won tickets in the local paper to go and see the first performance first local well, I mean, you know in my hometown not the, not the world premiere but the first showing in my hometown and it was at like eight o'clock at night and i was three years old but i was so excited for it that i was like yes and went to see the movie and then just fell asleep um but, but i remember everything about that just fired me up and she also took me to see the uh there was a re-release of the 1953 version of Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea the Disney one, and the squid fight in that. So that had a cinematic re-release in the late 70s, and the squid fight in that was just like, wow. So those those are the ones that set up movies. And then horror really came about, so I was a re very imaginative kid, uh, but I used to write horrible stuff. It was, it was like one of those ones where the teachers would be like, yeah, Mrs. Higgins, yeah, your, your son's, yeah, yes, it's quite a lot of people being cut into pieces, yeah. You know, it would be, I'd write stuff like that, and I'd whatever. But, but I'd be terrified, so I was terrified of horror movies because I was convinced that they'd be worse than all the stuff I could visualise. And it took, so I didn't actually see any, you know, I used to, I was scared of Scooby-Doo when I was a little kid. I was scared of horror, but I used to write horrible stuff. Um, and then I got to about 14 and my brother, my older brother, Cole, watched Alien, which he taped off telly. And he said, I think you can do this. 
And I was like, really? I don't do horror. I don't. And he was like, no, I think you could. And I watched it. And I was like, well, that wasn't as bad as the stuff. <laughs> so I loved Alien. And then I went and watched every single horror movie I could put my hands on. So I went from not having seen anything when I was 14 to by the time I was 16, I was trying to find it. loads of stuff that was unavailable in the UK. At the time. So Texas Chainsaw Massacre and The Exorcist and all that, I was sourcing through people at college, getting 10th generation VHS of that just to fill in all the gaps. So it was a very quick, very intense grounding in horror, I guess. Awesome. Does any of that still stick around when you're writing a movie? Do you, do you ever sort of go go like, oh, I want to do something that reminds me of this film or that like was different to this film? Is there a film that stay in the back of your head? Yeah, they, I, there's a. I mean, you could you can sometimes spot reference points in in stuff I do where <laughs> I think particularly people who know me well will go, yeah, Pat, you were having a Gremlins moment there, weren't you, or, or whatever it is, whether it's Halloween <laughs> or you know Exorcist Three, particularly the ones that leave. You know, there's some films just leave smudges in your brain, and occasionally you do that consciously, and occasionally you don't. You know, there's certainly a, I've, I've got a strange movie called The House on the Witch Pit, which very, very few people have seen in any version, but it keeps changing versions and stuff. And in one version of that, uh, there is a shot that is wholesale nicked out of Exorcist Three, and and it was even when I framed it, I, it was one of those things where um, I think actually that was on it was on a sort of second unit down. I don't think they had a separate DOP. I'm fairly sure I I was shooting. And I was looking through it and I was like, I don't even know if I can bring myself to see This is so obviously nicked off <laughs> But I went with that. But no one's seen that version of that movie. So maybe when it comes out, everyone goes, no, that's just shameless. Is it funny? It's funny. It's a good concept that you were saying that like when you started watching horror movies, Lauren and I often will talk when we interview people like, What's that first genre jumping like gets you into horror? Because she has very good friends that don't like horror. I have younger children, so that are now at the age where they've seen horror movies. But as someone who loves them and actually started on them as babysitters trying to scare us, so like mm-hmm. Nightmare on Elm Street was brought to our house as they were babysitting to scare me. You know, it was just like a, the cool kid in the neighborhood showing us off. But sometimes, like in your brain, especially with you writing, you know scary things or horrific things like your brain is almost scarier than what they can put on a movie so like that's a really interesting concept there yeah totally I, uh, um I, I think all writers are scared of their own brain to a degree <laughs> 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 and, and I, I i i think it, you wouldn't swap it you know you wouldn't swap that that way of thinking because i think it, it's it's absolutely invaluable for for writing but there are there's definitely bits of my brain, even now, even 20 years in. I mean, Stephen King always said about um, Pet Cemetery that he wrote it and put it in a drawer and said, I don't think the world needs that, actually, uh, and didn't didn't go to it for ages until I think he was a book down on a deal. There's something like that where he actually kind of was in a position where he was like, that book I didn't publish, probably need to. But, I mean, that, that novel, for example, is clearly from such a dark place. Um, and so there are definitely bits, there are bits of fenced off up there with do not enter. And occasionally you'll kind of grab something from behind the barricade and chuck it in a script. Um, and you kind of go, I got away with that one. It didn't, whatever lurks behind that barricade didn't pull me into the darkness. Not just yet. Oh, wow. Quite a lot of what you write also though, like tongue in cheek and comedic and really funny. Was it always like that or did that like grow into it? Because you said you were a stand-up comedian. How did that happen? Yeah, I, I, 
I think stand up. I think only people with. <laughs> I can't go broken people. That's not quite right. But I think that there needs to be something to to drive you to do stand up. Um, some kind of thing that because it's a it's an awful position for a human being to choose to put themselves in. Really. Um, and there's something about the nature of it where just standing up and communicating with you and then however many people it is, it's not sufficient that you're just up there saying something interesting or whatever. You need to get a reaction. And if you're not getting the reaction, you're bombing. You know, you could stand up there and, and tell a wonderful story about a life enriching, you know, but if, you, if the laughs aren't there, you ain't doing your job. And I think that something about that again like like the fenced off bits of the mind you know where you grab things from beyond it i think there's bits from stand-up that actually just either destroy your ability to do things without getting the, the laugh every now and again because because certainly but it also acts in a, some way like a um like a vaccine i think against every other form of public speaking certainly because as a lecturer Every now and again, I go. I can't believe I don't have to get a laugh every twenty seconds. You know, I can talk. <laughs> I can talk about Hitchcock for twenty minutes, and if no one's laughed, I've still done my job. So, <laughs> you know, and and so once you've done the thing where every you need to gag, you need to gag, you need to gag, and so I think I do find it difficult to write stuff that that doesn't lean into the gags. It does become a defence mechanism in my writing to a degree. And then some of the ones where I have kind of tried to not, um, we did a couple of anthology movies uh, with that I did with, uh, I directed a segment and Ginny's directed a segment, Al Ronald directed a segment of a movie. We did a movie called Bordello Death Tales and we did one that we shot as Battlefield Death Tales, but then it came out all over the world under various different titles. It came out under Nazi Zombie Death Tales, uh, uh, Nazi Zombie Battleground. It came out some. There's no Nazi zombies in it, but yeah, that's Martin's point. But um, but my <laughs> chapters of those, because I was dealing with something that was like 26 minutes rather than dealing with something that was 90 minutes, I thought I can try the different palettes of, of writing. And both of my Death Tales stories uh, are more serious than the other two segments in those films. I think I've got the the, the least funny in both movies. Mine are the, the darker ones, the bleaker ones. Um, and yeah, so I do occasionally kind of it, but I don't, they're not, that's not where my comfort zone lies. Um, you talk about looking for the gag and, and or or waiting for not looking for the gag, looking for the laugh when yeah. you're we're doing stand up. Do you look for audiences? What is your kind of dream scenario for audiences when they see one of your movies? Because you obviously want to have them have some kind of feeling one way, or is it you know is it the laughter in like something that is a comedy horror? Is it you know a certain scene that you're waiting for? Or are you just hoping they walk away from it kind of overall feeling? Because obviously you want some kind of feeling from the movie for the watch people that mm. watch it. I, I think watching a movie, that, particularly a movie that you care about, watching a movie with an audience is one of the best educators in terms of editing uh, and in terms of rhythm um, that you'll ever have. Because that bit that you thought, actually, I can leave that extra nine frames on, on that before we cut to the exterior or whatever it is. And then you're sitting with an audience and you realise that the scene's done and they're waiting for the next bit. And suddenly that nine frames sucks. Uh, and I think that gags, 
I do get hyper aware of that with, I mean, um, as I said, the, the original version of House on the Witch Pit only ever screened once. We screened it in one, um, one festival showing. We had one big sold out festival showing and then I smashed the master on stage at the end of it. But that, that screening, uh, I was so painfully aware of the audience. Uh, and I've never quite had one like that because I knew it was only, going to be the only time that, that the movie, certainly in anything like that version, was going to play because I knew I was going to smash it. So, um, but that I sat through that going, okay, I'm trying to follow their process watching it. Um, and yeah, so gags are a way of sort of checking the pulse sometimes. I think, you know, if you if a gag falls flat that you know is a solid gag, it's because something else is, isn't working, usually, uh, that they're either rattled or bored or God forbid, uh, or, or whatever it is. So it, it can be a good way of just sort of taking the pulse and going, you're still there, you're still there. Gotcha. I got to know, why did you decide yes. to to destroy the master copy on stage after only one viewing? Um, I, I kind of did it so that I could still be talking about it eight years later. <laughs> That's not the reason that you, you'll find, you know, I, I, I have, I have the artistic reason. I have <laughs> whatever, I have a reason for every season. You know, I can just chuck it out there. If I want to sound like a mysterious author, I can say I wanted to give the people in that room a, a, an experience that could never ever be duplicated. Um, if I want it, you know, if I wanted to look at it from a brutally uh, marketing point of view, you know, that, People are more interested in that, and also, and it was it was much a statement. And I'm not, I, I can't, I can't, I can't refer to my stuff as the work. I can't, you know, I can't do the artistic statement thing. But as much as anything is an artistic statement in anything I've done, there is a petulant child element of me that it that thinks that nowadays, they you, I feel that we always used to have a bond between the audience and the the filmmakers that involved you meet me halfway. And I think that, you know, when I was, if I'd go out, say I went out to try, I'm going to mention Gremlins again. I'm going to take it as an arbitrary movie. <laughs> I've seen Gremlins over a hundred times. Uh, not not done. <laughs> um, but so if I was going to go out and rent Gremlins, yeah, I'd go down to the video shop. I've got, a, I've paid my money to, to drive down there or I've taken the time to walk down there. I've gone down there. I've found that Gremlins is out and I've seen that Ghoulies is in. Uh, and for me to go through that process of renting Ghoulies, I've got to go, all right, well, the movie that I was going to get isn't there. I've seen this other thing that looks kind of fun, but might, you know, but I look at it, I go, right, it's probably cheaper, it's probably whatever. And I make that decision. And then by putting my money on the counter, it's not just the two quid or whatever I've paid to rent it, it's the fact that I've, I've already paid to travel there. I'm going to travel back. I'm going to need to travel back again the next day and back again. And so by the time I put my two quid, I'm actually saying, I think this is going to entertain me. I am invested in this entertainment transaction and I'm, I'm betting. Here's my money. I reckon this is a movie for me. And if you then watch it and it's not a movie for you, sometimes it might be your fault in misjudging it. Sometimes it might be that they've marketed it wrongly. Sometimes it might just be a movie that just doesn't click for you. But there's still a level of investment from the audience. And I, and I feel that as a consumer as well, I mean, I dearly, dearly, dearly love horror movies. And in the last eight years... I must have turned off more movies after 10 minutes than I did for the entirety of the 41 years before it because they're infinite now. 
I'm not driving, you know, I'm not driving the truck. Once, if I got through everything on Shudder, if I got through everything on Prime, if I got through everything on Netflix, I could still start going in all the free channels and stuff, and I could watch horror movies more or less indefinitely. I have not backed my my decision. When I press play, I've not backed that with money on the counter and four trips backwards and forwards to say, oh, I'm going to be entertained by this. Um, and so, to a degree, House on the Witch Pit was a sort of, this is a universe where everything is available, and this one's not. It's because so so we made one version that was, as I say, streaming one place at one time, and then I destroyed it. And then we went right the way back to the rush. So I recut a different version that was available via Amazon for one night, and then I deleted that as well. So that's never been so. The only places anyone will have seen it were two completely different versions. One of which was screened publicly in a, a sold-out festival, and the other of which was available for one night on Halloween in 2017 or whenever it was, where it just went up for one night and then it was gone. Um, and I like the fact that it's like, oh, you weren't there for that. Oh, no, no, you can't see it now. No, tough. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> there's all these That's other movies. Really cool. movies, but not that one. That's really interesting. That is that that was that's awesome way to look at it because we actually talk a lot about how. The joke is you have to go horror fans in general kind of go through a whole bunch of garbage now to get to like a diamond in the rough. Right. And because mm. you do see a lot of stuff and then mm -hmm. you say like, oh, they remade this or they did this. And that's really cool to think like, yeah, I've seen a version, but there's only been two versions that I've that have ever been released. And I can't just go and find it. No, I can go find anything that I want on Netflix, Prime, you know, Voodoo, whatever. But I can't go find that version that that person saw in that room. Yeah, that's um, very I, cool. I, I think it says something about about human psychology, though. That by trying, we didn't release any stills, we didn't release a cast list, we didn't release a synopsis, even for the festival screening. They just knew it was, I, I you know, for the festival, it, it was cheating to a degree that every year I do a, I do like a one man talk about filmmaking. So I was such a known commodity to that festival audience that despite the fact that they knew nothing about the movie, enough of them will go, all right, all right, okay, I'll put my money down for that. Well, you know, we can kind of do that. Um, but, but yeah, the, I wanted a thing that was a, a was just an experience that, that people couldn't then go and go, you know. But oh yeah, I was going to say the, the thing about human nature, every other one of my movies, of course, at some point I've had to sit and bash into the IMDb every single detail of every person in the credits and all that sort of thing, because you kind of have to do that. House and the Witch Pit, you try and keep it silent, you try and keep absolutely nothing on the internet and whatever, load up the IMDb one day, there it all is, because people don't <laughs> like the idea that you're actually keeping stuff. Of it. It's only there for one version of the movie, but whatever. And it was just like, wow, man, all you've got to do to get someone else to do all the work for you is say, well, I'm not telling you that. <laughs> <laughs> So then, would you ever consider doing another movie like that again? Uh, well, I, I mean, House of the Witch is still it's still there. So there's a third, there's a completely different third version. I mean, the first version, without 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 spoiling the integrity of the audience experience in the room, the first version is effectively a cinematic, a standard cinematic language. The second version was entering into the territory of a fake documentary spliced with other stuff, which is kind of devil's music was a fake documentary. So I, I have form in that area. Um, and uh, then I've got a third version that has never been seen anywhere that we finished in about 2020 and it's actually it, it's in pretty good shape 
uh, and that's a cinematic one, but it hops backwards and forwards between two time frames because by that point, I realised enough time had passed that the actors had started looking completely different and whatever, and we brought some some key cast back and did about another three days of filming for other material for a, a, a completely separate framing story that we could ping backwards and forwards between the two. Um, and so that, but that version's never been seen, and now it's gone where are we another three years since I even cut that together I, I'm kind of thinking maybe I, I you know maybe I'll show that to someone or maybe I'll do something completely different with it but I think it'll always be my that one I said I was going to stop messing around with it after five years but I think it's just my chew toy like a dog like I just go you know I'll just go and mess with House and the Witch Pit for a while <laughs> is that your favorite I mean so we you had the movie um and I'm, I'm sorry was it the movie that you said it was which the one that you were talking, saying was the best experience on set? Oh no, that's Hellbride. Hellbride. So, so is Witch Pit kind of your favorite? Your favorite, like, is that your kind of pet project? Where like you, you, the one that you wrote, you put like you, you like the most of, or is there one that you have that stands out to you as your kind of your your gem of all the others? I mean, I think Witch Pit that you care about, not that it's better, but that you care about more. Yeah, I they all I, I love them all in different ways. Um, um Witch Pit was it, it that was the one where for a while it was there was an incredibly dark version of it which was the one as I say where I'm taking taking ideas from the fenced off bits in my brain and and kind of putting them all in one script or if a joke if there was a joke that was way too dark to that would ruin the tone of something like Hellbride it was all going into the Witch Pit script. And then I worked with an agent for a while who didn't, she was a fantastic agent. She did not want me to keep doing micro-budget horror because it was potentially damaging my my value in the marketplace. And uh, and so I kind of went, but I can finish the one that I'm working on, yeah? And she was like, oh, yeah, that's fine. And so it became the one that I never finished so that I could always be carrying on doing that without upsetting my agent. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, so, that's great. That's amazing. I'm telling it all today. <laughs> no, I love that. <laughs> no, well, but yeah, in terms of in terms of other ones, I mean, Devil's Music was shot on a fraction of the budgets of uh, it, its predecessors, all three of its predecessors, uh, and it was the one that got the best critical notices. It, it, we got best independent feature at Festival of Fantastic Film, um, and we literally shot that on a grand and a half. It was what was left in the budget when we wrapped Hellbride and Killer Killer. Uh, so we shot Hellbride and Killer Killer back to back, and we had a contingency. And it was just like we had a grand and a half left out of the contingency. And the following year, I just sort of said to my wife, well, what are we going to do with that? And then we thought, well, actually, if we do a fake documentary that leans very heavily into talking heads, uh, we can probably get another film out of that. And so that's what we did. Uh, and then that ended up being the one that, as I say, won the festival that the, the previous movie had got the commended status at. Uh, it was the one we got a good review in Empire. We got a good review in Total Film. And it was a movie we shot for a grand and a half. I mean, about 20 minutes of that movie is Cy Henty talking to camera, and that was shot, that entire, so about 20 minutes of the movie was shot in about an hour and a half in a room above a pub just down the road. You know, it was incredibly, a lot of incredible kind of lo-fi stuff. Um, but but that movie, I think artistically, is the one that was closest to the vision in my head, I guess. Although Power Tool's pretty close. Power Tool Cheerleaders yeah. is, is, is rocking on, you know? Uh, we've got it's musical. We've got twelve songs. We've got all that stuff. 
I was gonna say because you did you wrote songs for Devil's Music too, didn't you? Yes. So you've got some sort of weird connection between the two that have music in them. <laughs> yeah, I, do, I I see these things as well. I, in fact, the signature song, the signature song for the boy band in Power Tool Cheerleaders versus the boy band of Screeching Dead, is uh, the same song that is the signature song of the boy band singer who is potentially the antichrist in the devil's music so i liked the idea in in my head it's never it's never referenced we did in one of the deleted scenes there was a vague reference to that song being a cover version and i loved the idea that the the boy band are so uh removed from the sense of proprietary propriety rather that they would cover a song by someone associated with a tragedy you know is that sort of thing from another movie it just seemed like a really crass thing that an in-world thing where I kind of went, actually, I like that. So uh, if anybody is looking for connections between them, they go, that song sounds awfully familiar. Um, yeah, there's also a glimpse of another of the songs by the Antichrist. The, the, sorry, I can't say he is the Antichrist. He might be the Antichrist in, in the Devil's Music. Another of his songs, there is a mutilated version of another of his songs in House of the Witch Pit as well. So there's all these things seeded through, I guess, that, that kind of go through. But but in terms of the music, it really comes about, I, I love songs. I love writing lyrics. I love writing structure. And I'm awful musically. I, I'm, I'm crap on the guitar. I, I don't really have any kind of singing voice. But luckily, um, Phil Sheldon, who I've worked with since 2006 on everything musical, if I say to him, Phil, here's an awful crappy demo of me and an acoustic guitar. Can you turn it into something that human beings might want to listen to? And then three weeks later, he's like, is this kind of what you're... And it's just this full rock song. And it's like, yes, Phil, that's that's exactly what <laughs> So I'm lucky to have uh, someone wow. I get to work with who's so obscenely talented. Uh, and that was that's you know what we did on Devil's Music was I'd, I'd scratch out these crappy demos. And in fact, the American DVD of Devil's Music's been out of print for ages. But if uh, and the the menu screen for it is the the main character giving the middle finger. And if you go down the menu and you and then you sidetrack it and highlight her fingernail, it plays all of my horrific demos that I sent Phil through. Um, no. <laughs> Oh, I need to find a copy. Anybody in the listener universe, tell me if you have one. I will buy your copy. <laughs> I was always really proud of that. I was like, I remember when the district... So you're saying the, the devil's music... Sorry? Oh, sorry, you're skipping out, Chris. What'd you say? The, the, those are... In... Oh, I apologize. Is it this is the Devil's Music and it's an American release on DVD? Yeah, it, it was put out you're by... saying that the thumbnails are? It, sorry? Yeah, you're that's, that's what he was where those saying. demos are. Yes, it, it, they're they're hidden on the disc though. If you go down the menu and then right click it, so it highlights her fingernail where she's giving the middle finger on it, and uh, yeah, then it, it plays all of the demos with an on-screen apology. Uh, and I think there's maybe some some behind-the-scenes photos and stuff like that on there as well. I mean, they are horrific to listen to. I really am a remarkably untalented musician, but it shows what Phil had to work with. And then you've got these brilliant songs on the the thing, which is. <laughs> Well, being in America, I am now on a treasure hunt, and I will have to go find this. I, I if, will find one, and I will get you one for Christmas, Lauren. Yes, please. <laughs> it, it, was put, it was put out, if I remember rightly, it was put out by Lono Entertainment, who were wonderful. They were lovely, 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 and then they stopped trading about four months after the movie came out. So they did a wonderful job. It was a wonderful disc. It was, it, we had ads in Fangoria. We had all that sort of stuff. 
and then the movie came out and then they just went and I, it breaks my heart when distributors particularly ones who were really nice and engaged as they were um, they were wonderful and as I say they were very helpful in, in all those all those aspects of distribution but so it, and that, I'm trying to think what year that would have been Two, uh, yeah probably 2009 it's, if, it's, if they're knocking around they're, <laughs> they're pretty okay. old now but yeah it was an American disc so tell us a little bit more about how you've enjoyed sort of the different aspects of, of actually getting films out there. Because we've talked a lot about making films, but we've never really asked anybody about what it's like when you, you got the film, you're showing it places, you want to get people into it. What what do you love about it? What do you hate about it? What's, what's fascinating about it? Because we've never really had that, that question asked before, and you've done it loads. Well, I mean, where I, I put together, the, as I say, every year I put together a talk for horror and see about a different thing or with a different kind of um, subject matter ar around horror. And the the one that I've been putting together for next January is currently on the working title of selling the bloody thing, which is effectively, you know, because making it, it making it's not even the battle now, really. I mean, the but going back to to Trash House with my very first movie. I edited that on a 20 gig hard drive uh, that I had to get specially built. When I bought it, the guy said I was insane because it was more hard drive space than I'd need in my life. Um, but so I edited the feature on a, a, a desktop PC with, with less space than a phone would have nowadays. Uh, and that was brutal because I couldn't back it up. Uh, it was it would crash and I would lose a week's work. And it was just like, no, tough. Sorry, you've lost that. So that it, it was very, very difficult to make movies at that point now when trash house came out there were only 16 british horror movies made that year uh and house was one of them and so if i because <laughs> celluloid expensive shooting on digital yeah the technology's not really there to do that yet you know it was before youtube it was for you couldn't get a tutorial for how to do anything or you know and so it was a it was an ape trying to actually get anything made you get it made the distributors are like yeah, what you got? What's that? What's that? It's a horror movie. Oh, excellent. You know, is it, is it got some gore in it? Yeah. And then they watch it. And so, and then, you know, I mean, when Trash House got picked up, it's got scenes shot in my back garden and we ended up on the shelves of Blockbuster sat next to, you know, movies that were costing hundreds of millions of pounds. We got a wide release for it. But that was because back then, making it was really, really hard. The payoff for making stuff being dead easy now is that no one cares. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, as a as a rough, oh, you've made a film. Oh yeah, my brother made a film. Hey, right. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I was very lucky. I was blessed to do it when it was really difficult um, because it just meant that. Luckily, I was able to do it at that point, and that meant that I was a kind of a known commodity by the time. Yeah, in as much as I, you know. But at least I had, I could be, people could look back and go, oh, he's done this, he's done that, he's done, you know, the other. Um, by the time, it became really, really easy to make stuff. Because the problem when it's really, really easy to make stuff, as I say, is that if people have wonderful ideas and genuine, you know, a, a genuine drive to do something really, really interesting, if they're drowning in a sea where people are kind of going, oh, yeah, you know what makes money really quickly? It's horrible. <laughs> no, not anymore. <laughs> But if they're drowning in that sea, it's very difficult for those voices to get heard. And unless they're lucky enough, you know, I mean, where I've been lucky enough to have movies play at wonderful film festivals and all that sort of thing. But I don't know if I had no, you know, I don't know if the movie's on their own without the idea that, was this guy? Oh, he's done a bunch of other stuff. You know, it, uh, without that track record, I've got no idea whether they'd have 
sunk sunk without trace. So I do think it's tough for people nowadays, but the tough lies in a very different area. It's um, a really interesting concept, yeah. Do you enjoy taking your stuff to festivals, though, still? Yeah, sometimes. Um, I mean, Horror on Sea, I adore. Fright Fest, I adore. You know, these are one the festivals that I, I just feel very blessed to be sort of part of the extended family of. Um, and I actually went power tool. I went out on the road and I went to places like Dead and Sudbury, uh, which I'd never been to before. Uh, and so festivals like that, that were just these sort of up and coming festivals in the UK that I thought were really cool. Again, done with so much passion and so much sort of real genuine love for the genre. Uh, and so I love those kind of festivals. Occasionally, you'll end up at a festival where you'll go, wow, <laughs> this shouldn't be happening. Um, I, I did once go to a, a festival, of, uh, uh, which will again remain nameless. I'm not even going to say what country it was in, um, but they were screening stuff and obviously things were screening in either sort of 185 or 169, so widescreen, and they were just projecting it onto a 4-3 screen and letting a third of it vanish into the darkness. And no. so it, it wasn't like they oh. shrunk it. To, uh, oh. And I was just sitting in the audience going, are you, this is this is what's happening then. Is it, it this is just going to happen so that the shots so I can have shots where I frame the character over to one third of the screen and the audience will just be sitting watching an empty. <laughs> oh my so, god! Yeah. But there was wow. the breaks. But yeah, so the festivals where they care, the festivals where they, it's done with love and patience and infinite, you know, joy. Like as I say, Horror and Sea, Fright Fest, Dead and Subbury, places like that that just rock the house. I'll never ever tire of that. When you were making Trash House, that was your first film that you, the major film that you put out. What made you want to even go down that? You were saying how it was hard to make. What made you even want to go down that road? I think when I. When I, was, I remember when I just started university, I sat at university and I wrote this list that was uh, 100 criteria for the greatest movie ever made. And it was basically a list that was things like brain in a jar and mole people and stuff like that. And I just filled up this whole list and it was always in the back of my head that if I only ever got to do it once, I'd just throw all this sort of crazy stuff into it and, and I'd just go for it. But I didn't necessarily think I'd ever get around to doing that. I didn't think I'd necessarily be in the lucky position to do that. And then... Um, I ended up having to set up a, a media company which actually came up through the stand-up that in the days where you couldn't play video on phones, um, I was approached by a company who were developing a technology to enable moving image to be played on phones. And they thought that if you're going to do that, the phones didn't have the capacity to do anything pretty much. Uh, the internet was so sort of slow, but they had very, very good compression on it. And they said, what we need are 45-second clips of someone telling a joke. And they knew that I had an archive of, again, early digital camera, standard definition 4.3, but I had a digital archive of a load of good comedians telling gags. And so they approached me kind of go, and, and not many people did because no one was filming stuff digitally. People were either using VHS or they using whatever. And they said, well, look, if we can come to a deal and you can come to a deal with the comedians that, that have been there, and we can stream these down, uh, you know, we've developed this technology so so we can we can get this played on there and then we can sort of set up a deal. So I, I only really initially set up the, the production company as a media production company in order to sign a deal about stand-up comedy clips. And then, funnily enough, while they were developing this app, it wasn't even an app because that apps didn't exist. It was a thing that needed to be kind of side-loaded into the thing. But while they, while they were doing that, 
suddenly Apple come along and all of a sudden phones can play video. And it was like, yep, yeah, your business idea is down the pan. Uh, and so that went from being cutting edge to yesterday's bacon very, very, very quickly. And, and so I was there going, oh, got a company now, didn't mean to have a company. And I have the means to shoot stuff digitally because we've been doing that, as I say, for the stand-up thing. And then I thought about, I thought about my list of 100 criteria for the greatest movie ever made. And we got a few grand in the bank uh, that we were intending to buy a car with. And I sort of said to my wife, instead of buying a what if we made a movie? And because she's the greatest human being in the universe, she went, all right. <laughs> and, and that was kind of what we did. And that was it with Trash House. And we didn't know, you know, I had no contacts, had no one waiting to buy it. It was just me slaving away on the, as I say, on this edit. And uh, But then once it was made, I was able to get people to watch it quite easily in terms of distributors. And it was put out by Screen Entertainment. As I say, it was in it, multiple copies in every blockbuster in the country, which, I mean, a lot of the people that rented it hated it. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't like, it was in every blockbuster. And everyone loved it. It was like in every blockbuster, all these people are going, what is this garbage? So, um, yeah. <laughs> but, we, but it was there, and they watched it. And yeah, they paid yeah, yeah. their money to watch it. So Yeah, they, and they it got massively it. pirated as well. It was like, it, again, one of those surreal things. The day it hit DVD over here, because by that time, you know, you were getting more of video files getting transferred over the internet, although, again, it's still predating YouTube. But people were starting to do BitTorrent and file sharing and stuff like that. And you pull down the stats for that, and you'd be going, Trash House is doing the same as Underworld. What the hell is going on here? And, and it was pirated to such a degree that we had an American distribution deal for that that fell through, because they said the market's already been saturated by the fact that it's been pirated so heavily. And the pirated version had a sound glitch on it as well. So all our IMDb reviews are going, oh, there's this horrible sound glitch running through the whole thing. And it was it was a really nice sound fix on that movie for a low-budget movie. You know, uh, I had some other ones that had some sound problems, but Trash House was sweet, the sound mix on it. But yet we got all this, these people who, who downloaded it for nothing, then giving it one-star reviews on the basis of a crappy sound <laughs> just on the rip that was on BitTorrent. <coughs> But so now, totally world's different. All these years later, Power Tools, Cheerleaders is coming out. And yeah. what's that been like distributing, showing to people? You, just at Fright Fest, what did it feel like having an audience? How did they respond? It, it was wonderful to see it at Fright Fest. It, it really was. Um, the, the Fright Fest screening were, felt like, you know, it was the first time I've, I've, I've had bits of other things shown on like sizzle reels and stuff at Fright Fest, but it was the first time a feature that I'd written uh, played there. And, uh, and that was wonderful it was really great for everybody to you know go down and have a proper west end premiere for it so that really rocked out us um Powerful, you know I, i'm really fiercely proud of the movie i think that you know i was very very blessed by uh crew who, who pulled out all the stops and did incredible work particularly through, considering that through the early stages of production it was dealing with covid and stuff like that which was very very you know I, I, I learned to direct behind a mask, which wasn't something I'd ever done before. So, you know, it had it oh had some obstacles. Um, and uh, yeah, it made it it made it through. <laughs> it, it's been it's been a joy that one. So it sounds like it is it going to also get a, a sort of longer release if other people can't wait to see it and haven't had a chance to yet. Where do you know where it's going to be going? Yeah, it, October 13th, it, we've got a kind of tiered release pattern for it. So October the 13th, it will be hitting uh, paid down, download to purchase 
on some streamers. I'm not going to say which platforms because sometimes if you confirm it before it goes out and then it doesn't go out and it gets horrible. So uh, there, it will be available to purchase in the UK and the US on some streaming platforms on, on October 13th. And then it will be available to rent as of sort of the middle of January, somewhere around there, again, on both of those territories. Um, and then a bit further down the line, it might be available on some of the, the kind of um, subscription streaming services, if you like. But, so that's our, that's our staggered layout for it. If Those who are really eager to check the flick out can do so, as I say, 13th of October. Um, and, but yeah, you might you might have to dig around a little bit for it because I can't name the platforms at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> no so when you when yeah. you were putting oh sorry oh. I think Chris I think oh. you're staggering again are you there sorry we seem to be just for oh, the listeners oh. I think my video went out and we're oh. having audio issues with Chris wow. so apologize <laughs> I look I have plans on the theme have we got oh, you back Chris sure okay sorry Chris we we lost you a bit but can you re say your question because it all it staggered or froze or something <laughs> no I was saying that I will I will Lauren knows I will go through I have like a laundry list of check items to find movies at. So I will be purchasing it on the 13th. I will find whatever distribution place or streaming site has it, but I will be watching it on the 13th. So I am excited for that. Oh, fantastic. We're, we're going up against the new, I think the new Exorcist out in the cinema that night. So if you, if you, I, I'll forgive you if it's the, the 14th, you know. <laughs> you can't argue with the Exorcist. You know what, I'll you know, make you a promise. Exorcist will be after yours. I'm watching. Oh. I'm watching this first. Oh, I'm, I'm genuinely <laughs> honored. Thank you, man. That's fantastic. Yeah. I will yep. too because Tool is my first on the list. No, me too. Because watching just the trailer. If anybody hasn't seen the trailer, hop onto YouTube. This is a trailer for it, and it's stunning. Like the the visuals, obviously amazing and everything, but the music's funny. It looks absolutely hilarious. Was it so much fun to film? Because it looks like a riot. So a, a lot of it was. I mean, again, I, I'm very lucky to have been blessed with the cast and crew that I had. There were a lot of logistical things. Just doing a musical, 12 songs, you know, and again, doing it on a low budget and then doing it during a global pandemic and all of those sort of elements. There, there was some hair tearing along the way, unavoidably, but there were moments of, of sheer joy as well. So, uh, you know, and as I say, I think everybody's very, very pleased with how it worked out in the end, too. So, which is always nice. And you say it looks great. I think, you know, my, my director of photography, my director of photography, Al Ronald, is just amazing. And it, again, it's one of those things where I'd be in the room and I kind of, you know, we talk about what we're doing and, all that, and then he'd come back and go, is this all right? You know, when I watch the take and quite a lot of the time you get bound up as a director, you get bound up watching the performance, you kind of talk to your DP about, you know, framing and stuff. But I tend to get bound up quite in performance when I'm on set. And then he'll show me what he's done. And half the time I was just like, I just, I, I'm, he's such a joyous cinematographer to work with. He's wonderful. He's insanely gifted. And sometimes it would just be a very, very limited location or whatever. And he'll just throw these little, whether it's just throwing a little shard of light through, through, you know, with some dust bunnies in it or whatever it is. And it just, you just kind of go, man, you've made my movie look wonderful. <laughs> so like, that's all Al. That's not me. You know, that. <laughs> I love that. And so what was it like writing a musical then? It was it was good. I mean, I always I always bang on about this for anybody out there who who's creative, anybody who who writes anything, or you know whether it's novels or whether it, it's it's movies or whether it's songs. I genuinely, genuinely believe that no creativity is ever wasted. 
Um, it just because it either lays the groundwork for something else that that you're going to be ready for because you've done the other stuff that maybe didn't find an audience or whatever. You do the work, and then if you made something crap, that's brilliant because by making something crap, you learn something, and it means that the next time you go, well, I won't do that, that, and that, and then you're actually a step along the path. But in the and then in the case of this. I was digging through stuff, that, and there's literally the song lyrics from songs I wrote when I was 18. 30, so th songs from like 30 years ago uh, that I was sitting in my, my bedroom at university trying to work out an acoustic guitar, and I'd be writing lyrics. Uh, and some of them are in the songs that are in the movie. And so to be able to have that, that joyous option of scraping all this kind of creative history and, and, and finding uh, places for it is just grand. So it's a joyous experience from that point of view. Uh, it presents technical challenges, but as I say, thanks to, to people like Phil Sheldon and James Hammond Morton and, and Charlie Bond, um, the whole thing came together. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful to everybody <laughs> for making my efforts look so good. <laughs> so I know you said you had, like, I know you're, you've given us so much of your time. I do have one last question just to kind of ask you. Um, you say you're always kind of working on six scripts at a time. I mean, there are pieces of here, here. Is there one that you are hoping to kind of follow through a little bit more and, and try to work on next? Or are you right now just going with power tool and like, like letting that kind of marinate it more? Yeah. I've, I've, um, I haven't officially kind of announced this, but I've kind of unofficially announced this on a whole bunch of places. So one more won't hurt. Um, the, I'm currently <laughs> I'm doing a, a master's in screenwriting at the moment, which because uh, I wanted I wanted one. Uh, so, I'm, but the great thing about a master's by research is that uh, my final project for it is a, a script, um, and so that kind of means that a, a script serves two purposes. It means that. I need that script to be absolutely killer. Otherwise, I've just wasted two years doing a master's on it. And then it means that I've also got an actual deadline that I will stick to because otherwise I don't get my <laughs> master's. So um, <laughs> so the script for, for Chainsaw Fairy Tale, which, again, has a, a long, weird history as a title, um, because <laughs> I, I might very quickly tell that story. But, um, but yeah, so Chainsaw Fairy Tale is my, my MA final submission. Um, and so I, I have a, a vested interest in that being brilliant by next May. So that's going. If I don't then actually go and make it, that would feel like a, a somewhat missed opportunity. So, so that's that's the next one. That's the next feature anyway. There's, there's murmurings of maybe another anthology movie before that, but um, uh, but that hasn't been announced anyway. It's only because I was on phone calls about it this afternoon that, that made me think of it. Um, yeah, and so and then there's still a bunch of other scripts. The thing, the the Chainsaw Fairy Tale thing that I must just say, which is just the, again that weirdness about creativity and about nothing ever being wasted. That was one where I'd been messing around with the idea. I'd been messing around with. I had little odds and sods, little scraps of stuff. And then uh, when my son was born, he didn't sleep for ages. Like really, he'd sleep for 45 minutes at a time, and and then. So you spend for months, and so you'd spend all this time knackered, and it means you don't really develop memories properly. So it's like I've got this whole period of my life where, because he wasn't sleeping, we weren't sleeping, and you know, and and I just sort of thought everything's just a fuzz in that whole area. And I'd been doing a little bit of preliminary work for Chainsaw Fairy Tale, a different version of the script back then, and then someone said to me, "Whatever happened to that?" And I said. I, well, I, I wrote a bit of it, and they're like, well, how much? I was like, I don't know, maybe I did like a little Bible for it, maybe I did like a little treatment, something like that. And I went and dug around on a hard drive, 
and I found a file called Transfer Peritone and I opened it and it was a 104 page completed script that I had no recollection of writing because I'd written it <laughs> during a period of such intense sleep deprivation that <laughs> my brain had just gone. It's, and it was nuts. I mean, it, you know, it, it was reading it. I was like, I, I would take seven pages to set up a joke that I clearly thought was worth the effort, you know. But then reading it back, the joke would take me by surprise because I had no recollection of having written it. So it was a very strange script. But yeah, the new one's not. I could just go and film that script, but that would be something I don't know if people would want to watch. <laughs> it sounds like I would. I love mental. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you're a better person than me. When I was going through the young kids things, I was playing FIFA a lot. Oh, so right. I just made it to the Champions League with uh, Bayern Munich. You wrote a script for a movie. I was just playing, you know, FIFA on PlayStation. <laughs> well, no, I think PlayStation would have been, I mean, the script was nuts. So, it's, you know, it's only my thing about always reusing. Maybe I can cherry pick a few mad bits out of it and drop them into the new one. You know, it's that kind of a thing. But, yeah, I think... PlayStation is an entirely valid way of getting through that period. It's whatever can get you through that period, man. That's... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's needed. Amazing. Well, just thank you so much. We, we've had the best time. And I don't, do we just, everything that we've got a chance to talk about, it's been so much fun having you on. It, everybody cannot recommend these films enough, obviously. Power Tool Cheerleaders, like he said, October 13th. Let's try and make it bigger than Exorcist. Let's do yes, that. Absolutely. That's the plan. <laughs> yes. But seriously, thank you so much for being on. We really appreciate it. It's been a joy. Thank you ever so much for having me. Of course. Very, and of nice course, meeting you. And our listeners, you are in our sort of wonderful Halloween theme. So we have more interviews coming up. And then next video that we're watching is going to be for November, just to remind you, but it'll be a clockwork orange. And just as our last little thing that we're going to ask of you, Pat, what did you think of clockwork orange? Clockwork orange? <laughs> That was another one of those ones where, I, when I was sixteen, it, I was banned in this country. So I was, I got like the nth generation, you know, million brains all over the screen sort of thing from a classmate at, uh, at college, and I was just so pleased to have seen the damn thing. I don't think I paid any attention. <laughs> I was like, I've seen it. I'm the coolest kid in the world. So yeah, it took me a while to actually sit down and go, is it any good? But yeah, it's Kubrick. It's it's Kubrick. Yeah, obviously, yeah. can't go wrong. Thank you so much, listeners, again, for joining us. Pat, it's been such a riot. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's been a blast. Thanks for having me. Bye, Thank everyone. You, if you want to share your thoughts about this episode, please head to our Facebook or YouTube pages. We're grateful to Kukurbit, who made our music. Thank you for listening, and please join us next time for the London Horror Movie Club.